0: Well, what a delight to be here again. We are enjoying the fellowship, and it's a delight and a privilege to be here, and we thank you for this opportunity. And uh, you certainly have a lively group of kids in the Sunday School, (laughs) led by a lively Dave Bosworth. (laughs) That helps, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, it's great to be here, and we thank you. And we want to really thank you, especially, for the use of the house next door, and, we're comfortably set up in there. There's a few things yet to be done, but boy, it's it's uh, taking shape very nicely. And we want to thank you for the wonderful things in the house. Uh, crunchy peanut butter. <laughs> Who knew that I like crunchy peanut butter? <laughs> and Colombian coffee. I mean, that's the final touch. That was wonderful. Anyways, great, and many, many other wonderful things there. and We're grateful for it, and we thank you. I want to know before I get started, How many here know Ramon Prensa from the Dominican Republic? Okay, greetings from him, if you need greetings from him. Uh, He he told me, I saw him about three weeks ago in Colombia. He was there for a a children's camp. And uh, we've known Ramon for, what, 30 years or 25 years. He stayed in our home many, many years ago, and he's come numerous times as a conference speaker in Colombia. And it was great to see him again. And he he gave me some names of people in the uh, in the in assemblies in the area. And now I've forgotten who they were. So everywhere I go, I'm going to ask if the you know Ramon and and uh, if so, I greeting him. Ramon. We had a wonderful time together with him for about two or three hours out at the camp where they were uh, doing this children's camp related to what used to be um, Kids Alive, now Stand By Me Ministries. Uh, from Great Britain, which is supporting a school which our Prado Church helped get started, in the Banana Bell about three hours away from the city of Barranquilla. So greetings from Ramon. It's good to see him again. I want to read a passage of Scripture. Just listen. It says, Let us search out and examine our ways, and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven, we have transgressed and rebelled, you have not pardoned. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy of being here and we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts this morning so that the things we examine from your word would be of benefit to us, a challenge, and it would would bring honor and glory to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. This verse is found in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40 and 41, uh, actually 42 as well. And it's a solemn exhortation to do something which we should do frequently, and there's other places, and we're going to look at one in a few minutes in Haggai chapter 1. But this says, let us search out and examine our ways. This time of year, it's common for people to take inventory of their businesses and their personal lives, their weight gain. There are more diets started the first of January, I understand, than any other time of the year. And they usually end by the middle of February. <laughs> A lot of noble ideas begin in January as people examine and think back over the previous years. The previous year, their failures and their successes, and then what can I do better? And we as Christians definitely should do the same thing and turn back to the Lord. Israel, as often was the case, was in rebellion. And there's areas of weakness in our lives as well. Even though we attend faithfully, we love the Lord, blood-bought, redeemed on our way to heaven, we do fail. And we need to examine our lives and turn back to the Lord in uh, greater intensity and de- dedication and devotion. And then let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Well, we don't want to lift up our hands, do we? We don't want them to think we're Pentecostals lifting up our hands. We can't do that, can we? Why not? Good question. Now, we don't do it in an exaggerated uh, non-thinking way. I remember this happened in Colombia once. Uh, a Pentecostal preacher was on the air. Well, a bus left for Medellin. Praise the Lord. Glory to his name. And they had an accident. Praise the Lord. Glory to his name. And several people kid. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He wasn't thinking about what he's saying. When do you say praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory to his name, when there's an accident and people get killed. But they do that. We can do things, and I don't want to be unduly critical of the Pentecostals. They got some things that we could learn, I think. Their zeal for the Lord and their evangelistic efforts and so forth. But they do some foolish things. we probably do too. And they look at us and say, well, those people over there, they're really doing some strange things. But there's things that we can do thinking. And maybe raising our hands sometimes when we're really having a wonderful time of worship would be one of those things. And we find numerous places in God's Word about raising hands. I don't want to make a big issue of this, but let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. And probably in this context, it's more like pleading for the Lord to forgive and getting back right with the Lord, but it's also done when we worship the Lord. Recognition that we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not pardoned. Well, he's not pardoned because we haven't confessed our sin and sought that pardon. So that's kind of a a jump-off text. Let's go to Haggai chapter 1. And I'm glad to hear that I've been given up until 1215. I was getting a little worried there, cutting pieces out as the time went on. And it was great. Sunday school was great. I enjoyed that. It was one of the best I've seen in a long, long time. So uh, now don't get a swelled head over that, but keep up the good work. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. So God has a word for the leaders, the religious leader and the political leader. Now, Haggai, along with Zechariah and Malachi, are the three post-exilic books We had some thoughts from Zechariah this morning, and Joshua's name was mentioned. Zechariah 1.1 says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord, so two months later. So these two prophets worked together in challenging Israel to do what was right. They drifted away from the Lord. This occurred about 18 years after Zerubbabel first brought about 50,000 people back from the exile and they began to build the temple and then they quit. They got discouraged because of criticism and, and fear and one thing and another, and began to work on their own houses and so forth. And we'll read about that. So these two men, Haggai and Zephaniah, were called by the Lord to bring Israel back to where it should be and to make sure Israel was putting God first in their lives. And could be some of the filth on uh, Joshua, the priest, was related to this because as a spiritual leader, he had probably failed. Verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying it is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins it's a question, I'm sorry, is it Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So we have God speaking and God saying, this is what you say. And then God says, this is what I say. So we have human viewpoint and we have divine viewpoint. And that's something we should take into account these days. There's a lot of human viewpoint floating around out there. Ideas which people come up with, which are not, in agreement with God's Word. There are books being written and there's some very good books. I've been reading a lot of books lately having a little bit more time. I read as much as I could while we were in Colombia but I didn't have the time. And This year I've been reading a lot of books and it's been profitable. Uh, I even purposely read a couple books that I knew I wouldn't totally agree with just to find out what they were saying and, and so forth uh, but there are a lot of books out there that are not good books to read. That's human viewpoint. We need to be careful of human viewpoint. We'll maybe come back to that later, as time permits. So we have this contrast, and that's the first point of my message. I'm not really big on outlines, but it's nice to have outlines. The first point is the contrast. God's viewpoint, divine viewpoint, and human viewpoint, our viewpoint. What we do, the decisions we make, in every church, every assembly, in our own Christian lives, must be solidly based on God's word, on divine viewpoint, not on human viewpoint. And I'm convinced that in many churches, even assemblies these days, there are decisions being made on the basis of human viewpoint, human reasoning. Well, this seems to be good, and -and so-and-so wrote a book, and, and this seems to be working, or the church down the street is doing it, let's try it. We need to be solidly based on divine viewpoint in the word, of the, God, the word of the Lord. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in panel houses? And this temple lie in ruins. The temple was the symbolic and real presence of the Lord with them. It was very crucially important to them, and yet they'd abandoned it. And they just come back from 70 years of exile for disobedience and for failure to worship the Lord as they should. And they're, again, not honoring Him. Not the same people. Most of them had passed away after 70 years. But the offspring should have learned the lesson and put God first. And they were not putting God first. So we have that contrast between what man wants to do and what God wants man to do. Human viewpoint, divine viewpoint. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and here we have the command, consider your ways. And this, I suppose, would serve as a title for the message today, to consider our ways. It's a spiritual inventory time. It's time when we stop and we take stock and we examine where we've been and where we're going and maybe return, as the passage in Lamentations indicated, return to the Lord. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 2 later on about 60 years later when Nehemiah brought another group back in chapter 2 we find him on a horse going out at night to evaluate the situation and we sometimes need to evaluate our situation or reevaluate what we are doing and where we have been we're to consider our ways therefore says the Lord consider your ways and then he lays it out before them you have sown much but you have Uh, but you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Well, we receive checks these days, or sometimes our our check or the money we earn is deposited directly into our account. I think you understand the idea here of getting your money like they did back then, probably coins, and you put it in a bag with holes, you're not going to get home with very much, if any. And, and this is the whole thing. You sow and you don't reap, and you eat and you're not full, and you put warm clothes on you're still cold. These things happen because God is not first in their lives. Many years ago I used this passage, probably back in the 70's, with a couple who were in the assembly. And he had a fairly good job. He was putting in aluminum windows and doors and things like that. But he wasn't walking with the Lord as he should, by any means. Um, he would take people's money and uh, and spend it on himself, and then he wouldn't have enough money to finish the job, so he'd have to start another job. And, of course, you asked for half the money down to be able to buy materials, but then he'd take that money to pay for, for finishing off the previous job, and he was always running behind uh, in debt and, and all kinds of things like that. And terrible testimony in assembly and we were working with them and counseling him, he his wife and I read this passage to him and he said boy yo, that's me that's me getting his money in a sack with holes in it if we don't have God first in our lives and be walking with him and doing what he wants things just aren't going to come together and this was Israel's case they were looking after themselves first they were building their nice paneled homes and and letting the house of the Lord uh, lie in ruins which was a, a travesty it's a terrible situation just like this young fellow uh, he never did really pull through uh, he, he another one of his little tricks he was selling insurance to the missionaries and to a few other people whoever was sucker enough to buy and so he'd take the money and nobody had any insurance there were no policies or nothing whatsoever so he just took the money for the for the first payment and on he went so he did not Follow through and get right with the Lord and correct his ways. Verse 7, he repeats, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. We have this in a number of places. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're to examine ourselves, to make sure that we're in fellowship with the Lord and not partaking of the elements in an unworthy manner. In 2 Corinthians 13, we're challenged to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith and walking and giving evidence of being born-again believers. And the passage I read in, in Lamentations and many other passages, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, challenge us, exhort us to examine ourselves, to take stock, and to see where we are at. So that is the command. Uh... Let's look in verse 12 then at the compliance with his command. This is wonderful. This is a a note of victory here. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God. On the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius and so they finished the work of the temple being inspired by the prophet Haggai and to a certain extent the prophet Zechariah who also worked at the same time Haggai was very specific on the building of the temple they did respond oftentimes Israel did not respond when they were exhorted and Jeremiah there's several passages in Jeremiah where the people said we will not listen tremendous rebellion and sometimes we have people like that today that just will not listen They're doing things in human viewpoint, following things which do not correspond with God's Word, and you can't talk to them. They will not listen. They're stubborn. But here, we have the wonderful uh, result that they did comply, they did obey the Lord, they built the temple, and uh, it was a blessing to them and to the Lord. And in chapter 2, then, we we have the Lord, uh, through the prophet, asking them about a, a bit of a comparison between the former temple and the new temple which was not as big and not as luxurious and that was a bit of a, a sad thing to those who knew the old temple it was very wonderful but verse 5 says according to the word I have covenanted with you and came out of Egypt so my spirit remains among you do not fear even though the temple is a little bit smaller maybe not as glorious the Lord was there that symbolized his presence and was the actual place of his presence for his people Israel For this says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So it really doesn't matter if the temple is large or small, God's glory will be there. Now it would be nice if the temple was big and glorious as it once was maybe it wasn't big and glorious as a reminder of their sin and of their failure and why they were taken to Babylon for 70 years in slavery and why the place was in a mess. The walls were still not built. That came 60 or 70 years later when Nehemiah went back and then they built the walls up. And so it took a long, long time. And sometimes in our own Christian lives, the Lord reminds us of our past failures not to... To make us uh, feel bad. But to warn us not to do the same thing again. And that it should be the case. That we learn from our mistakes. I won't do that again. And I will continue to follow the Lord in his blessing. So we've seen the contrast. We've seen the command. And we've seen the compliance with the command. Uh, I mentioned other verses. And uh, we saw some of them. There's one in just a very brief one in Proverbs 4. I just discovered it the other day, Proverbs 4, I believe it's verse 26. To ponder our paths, I believe it says, Proverbs 4, No, that's not it. Oh, I'm in 6, okay, let's get back to 4. Yes, 4.26, ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Ponder the path of your feet. Think about what you're doing. Think about where you're going. Analyze. Where have I been? Where am I going? What are my goals for 2014? What were my failures of 2013? Can I correct them? Can I improve? What were my successes and my victories of 2013? Can I repeat them? I desire to repeat them. We should always be Desiring of a closer walk with the Lord. I've read, I think, three books this year on uh, an intimate relationship with God, intimacy with God, one by Dr. Benjamin Sawatsky and another one, I forget the author, just read it recently. And we should desire that, a holy walk with God. I reread Sproul's wonderful book on the holiness of God. And I'm finishing up another one on the holy walk with God now by uh, Bridges. Um, Jeremy Bridges, I believe it is. And uh, this should be our goal every year, to have a little bit closer walk with the Lord, more intimacy with Him, to understand His holiness, to pursue the holiness of God ourselves in our own lives. It's not something, as as one of the authors, I believe the author I'm reading now said, it's not going to come from Thursday to Friday. (laughs) It's not going to maybe come from month to month. But little by little, little by little, as we follow God, do His will, eliminate sin from our lives, eliminate bad habits from our lives, dedicate more time to Him, we will get closer to Him and have a more intimate walk with Him. This is my desire. It's not easy, particularly in today's culture, today's society, with so many things going on, so many things to distract us. I often think of the old writers of years ago, and I like to read some of them. Uh, Before electricity, Electricity is a wonderful thing. It has brought in a lot of wonderful things. (laughs) But it's also brought in the potential for a lot of evil things as well. Just think what we would not have if we didn't have electricity. (laughs) It would take an awful lot of things out of our lives. Radio, television, computers, all of the things that you charge up overnight that you can listen to and talk to and text with during the day. Those things are good in many ways, but they take time away from God's Word. And when we think about it, the people of old 100, 150 years ago before electricity was discovered, not invented, God made it, man discovered it, they didn't have television to watch in the evening. And I like to watch sports, I confess. And I like to watch the news and other things. And sometimes it's a temptation to watch things which we probably should not watch we didn't have radios to listen to before TV they didn't have we did so what did they do well I think those who were really dedicated to the Lord probably spent more time reading his word more time discussing his word with their family and meditating on it and possibly probably more time in prayer and doing God's will these things take time and we need to be disciplined in our lives so that you do not rob undue amounts of time from our time with the Lord. so It's an important thing to stop and examine and maybe return to where we once were or where we should be using return in that sense that we should return to where we are. I want to go back to the human viewpoint and the divine viewpoint. So much uh, of what we're seeing now is based on human viewpoint. There is a deterioration in culture and society in general. This has been planned. Uh, The devil is behind it. There are people behind it, but we're seeing in the last 50 to 80 years, and some authors even think maybe starting as much as 200 years ago, a deterioration and a decline in many areas of our society. Mm, Literature, uh, art, Music, um, manners, dress, uh, so many of these things are being downgraded and made um, cheap, Uh, quality uh, is going out the window, Uh, vocabulary, (laughs) I had a tenant in my house our last two years in in Colombia, and his vocabulary was very limited, and he used words that I don't commonly use and that you would not use behind the pulpit. Those were his main vocabulary words. And a lot of people cannot express themselves without using these vile terms. That's a shame. So there's many, many different things. As far as dress, dress is deteriorated. Uh, I was in an assembly in another state, and uh, the brother who was Uh, passing out one of the elements was in Bermudas and flip-flops and just a t-shirt or something and to me that is disrespectful first of all he's disrespecting himself but most importantly he's disrespecting the Lord I don't say we have to dress in tuxedos every Sunday morning but I think that there should be an area where we dress in a way that honors the Lord and our Colombians picked up on this without my saying anything some of them said When I go in to see the governor, or when I go in to see an important person about a business uh, situation or about some legal things, I have to dress up. I can't go in there in blue jeans and a t-shirt. When I come Sunday morning, I'm in the presence of the King of Kings, I should dress well. Now in the heat down there, we don't wear coats. (laughs) We rarely wear ties. Now in the cooler time, which is coming in now, January, February, there's breezes. The temperature drops from the mid-90s to the upper 80s that's a relief and the humidity drops a little bit and with the breezes you can sometimes wear a long sleeve shirt alone with a tie and uh, that looks nice but the emphasis was to have a nice clean shirt whether it's a short sleeve shirt without a tie that's fine if it's really hot weather which is most of the time but it would be clean and neat and you dress well in the presence of the Lord. One of our believers went to England on part business and some pleasure and he wanted to see the changing of the, of the guard there at Buckingham Palace at which the Queen was present. And there was a dress code. He had to have a suit and tie. Because the Queen must not see anything ugly. Anything distasteful to her. Uh, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or, or someone dressed that way. And he would be at least a hundred yards away. But this was the dress code for being in that area. And he had that same idea when he came back that we should dress well when we come to the Lord's Supper to worship Him uh, Sunday morning. So these are things which are happening in our culture and our society. Music is, can can you find pleasant listening music, relaxing listening music anymore? Remember on furlough once in the 70s and the 80s? We would have a station on, not Christian music, but just nice listening music, relaxing music. You can't find that anymore some of the stores you go into, I want to get out as quick as I can, buy whatever I'm buying and get out of there because I'm just, my nerves are on edge, as my mother would say. So vocabulary, drama, entertainment and of course morals are deteriorating tremendously and that's a very very serious situation. The marriage and the home and of course we've got gay marriage and we got abortion and we got all kinds of related things and it's getting worse. So the culture in our society is rotting before our eyes. Now what does that do to the Christian church, to the born again believer? We are influenced by these things to some extent as culture and society goes, the church also goes and we have noticed this things are happening in churches now that did not happen twenty years ago now when you're here every Sunday and in different churches, and I'm not criticizing this assembly I haven't been here long enough, it seems to me like you're doing pretty well Maybe I shouldn't say that so you <clears throat> don't think, of, hey, we're okay. <laughs> we all always should, as we're saying this morning, examine where we've been and where we're going. But we would come home on furlough and we would visit different churches and we would see changes. When you're there, Sunday after Sunday, you don't notice those little changes. But when you come home on furlough every three or four years, we noticed it over the years. And they're not changes for the better in most cases. So we need to be very careful. The church, generally speaking, many of the authors I've been reading, uh, Chuck Swindoll, uh, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, Gary Gilley, many of them are concerned about the church in North America today. And many other authors, articles I've read, books I've read, people are concerned because the church in North America is anemic, it's losing ground. It's not the church, the godly church that it once was, if it ever was really a godly church, but it's worse now than ever. So there are these these serious considerations. I want to read something related to that that I received probably 40 or more years ago about Joseph Stalin and his plan for the conquest of the United States. And he had a number of things. One dealt with philosophy and mysticism. Another dealt with the destruction of the marriage in the home. But then the third one dealt with the culture. And it said, cultivate the ugly. Interesting. Cultivate the ugly, the futuristic, the aberrant in art, literature, drama, and music. He said, any nation or any people who utilize aboriginal type music, such as the drum, are easy to conquer. This is Joseph Stalin talking, this is a quote, and he said that throughout history, the world, the world, wherever you find the drum and the people dancing around the drum, and wherever you find the beat, you find a decadent people, they make good slaves. They're easy to conquer, they're a people to be exploited. This is Joseph Stalin, and he wrote this back in 1932, and so there has been an effort to deteriorate culture And of course, this gets into the church. This gets into the church. And there's a number of ways, and I'm not going to go into it deep this morning, but I want to mention some of the things which are coming in and which some assemblies have been influenced by, and to sound a warning as we go into 2014. We're on the threshold of a new beginning, a new page, a new start. Let's be aware of some of these dangers. The prosperity gospel. Uh, This is one which I'm sure we're well aware of and uh, are warned about. Uh, We're helping out with a Hispanic group up in St. Catharines, uh, nearby my hometown of Beamsville. Uh, The contact was made through one of the brothers in one of the assemblies there. The group itself is non-denominational, I guess we could say. The leaders of the group are are conservative Baptists with a lot of contact with the assemblies there. Uh, It's in Spanish and they're delighted to have Priscilla and I helping them because most of the other people in there have Pentecostal backgrounds and we've run into this prosperity business and there's some there that's just gung-ho for the prosperity gospel. Yeah, we all have to be rich and, and they got their lingo and so I wrote some notes on that and gave some study on the prosperity gospel to these who are involved in that. And, of course, the big paradigm that we have now, this change to the emergent, emerging church, of which the largest single member, I suppose we could say, or movement in it, is the purpose-driven model, the seeker-friendly, give the people what they want, entertainment-oriented, bash-and-crash-and-happy-clappy, whatever you want to call it, uh, group. And the emphasis is to bring people in and found mega-churches. That's the goal. I read, that was one of the books I read, The Purpose Driven Church. Our mandate, in my opinion, is to make disciples. Our mandate is not to make megachurches. And there is a difference. And I found out recently that the main mentor for Rick Warren, who is behind this, has been a man by the name of Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker is a sociologist uh, he's also an expert, primarily an expert in management, was on the board of many Fortune 500 companies, including General Motors and General Electric, and he knows how to organize and manage and get things done. Peter Drucker is a um, secular humanist. He was born in Vienna, Austria 1909. He died in 2005. From, 2000, from um, 1985 to 2005, he was Rick Warren's chief mentor not a believer a secular humanist steeped in the philosophies of Europe Kierkegaard, Hegel and these people and also the eastern mysticism uh, religions he wanted a social model and thought that industry and commerce would be that model to implant his socialistic ideas of care from the cradle to the grave pre uh, pre-kinder, kinder kinder Elementary school, high school, and so on. Uh, Health care, social life, a job, of course, retirement. The whole works in the context of a model based on uh, commerce and industry. It didn't work out for some reason. And begin to look at these articles on megachurches. Whether he wrote something on that, I don't know. But Rick Warren went to him. Rick Warren went to him. And he gave Rick Warren some advice, and some of that advice was now, if you want to build a large church, you've got to get rid of some of these ugly terminology, Uh, blood, wrath, the cross, um, judgment, uh, these types of things, sin. You can't talk about those things. People won't come if you talk about those things. So you've got to get rid of those things. And so what do we have? We have this type of a gospel in these churches. And this is why John MacArthur and a number of other people are very concerned that in these mega churches of thousands of people, many of them may not truly be saved. Because they have not heard that they're sinners, that Christ died and shed his blood for them. And that because they have violated his holy law and offended God, they need God, they need to repent. Repentance is an unpopular thing. You can't talk about repentance and have people coming into your churches. So if your goal is to build a mega church, you use these market-driven ideas. You don't go back to the Bible. There are many other dangerous things happening uh, and several books, and if you want to read more about it, uh, Paul Smith has written a very excellent book. He's the brother of Chuck Smith, who was the founder of, actually together, but Chuck was the main one, the founder of the Calvary Chapels, at which Dave Hunt speaks uh, frequently, or spoke frequently. He passed away in April of last year. Uh, Another one is by Warren Smith, or no relation. Warren Smith was involved in the New Age for a number of years and was saved out of the New Age. And he sees a lot of New Age things related to this purpose-driven movement, this new paradigm, uh, which is coming out, the emergent church. So there's great dangers. And some assemblies have gotten involved in that. I read about it. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to take spiritual inventory. Stop and consider our ways where we're going what we're reading what we're doing and why we're doing it there are a lot of books out there which are wonderful excellent books there are a lot of books out there that are not And we need great discernment if, if there's anything we need in this day and age as we go into 2014 is great discernment and there are many passages of scripture that warn about the last days about the deception in the last days Christ warned about it Paul warned about it Peter warned about it, just about all of the apostles and writers warned about the deception of the last days, the false teachers, the false prophets, the false Christs. I read in one of the books I just read about a a fella in California who says he is the Jesus Christ Satan, that's his name, Jesus Christ Satan, and he paints himself up with lipstick and he wears a robe and he runs around in sandals claiming to be the Christ but with a a last name of Satan. I don't know how he figures he's going to get that across. The point of the author was that this is extremely dangerous because people look at that and say, well, yeah, this is the false Christ. That's easy to identify. When the the real dangerous ones are the ones that are subtly coming in that we think are born-again believers and doing what is right. Another thing I've discovered, reading these books, is a tremendous close relationship between Rick Warren and Robert Shuler. I did not know that. There's a tremendously close relationship and Robert Shuler and the Crystal Cathedral have been using A Course in Miracles for a number of years. A Course in Miracles is like the Bible for the New Age religion, which is totally against the Gospel. So there's real danger. There's real danger. One more little tidbit or two. They're all working toward the New World Order. And Rick Warren is considered one of the major players on the world stage leading toward the New World Order. You've heard of his peace plan. If you've read anything about him, you've heard of his peace plan. Try and find any scripture in that peace plan. He's spoken before the United Nations. He's spoken and as a member of the, uh, uh, the Committee for Foreign... Relations, I believe it is, which is a branch of the Trilateral Commission, which was founded by the Rockefellers in the 1970s. It's a new age group, and he's a member of it, and he's spoken to them, and he attends their meetings. His peace plan mentions nothing about the Prince of Peace who can bring personal peace to the heart of those who would receive him as their personal savior, and it mentions nothing about the Prince of Peace who will someday come soon and rule in peace over the earth. He mentions nothing of that when he's before the United Nations or when he's before uh, the Trilateral Commission and so forth. Now when you hear him on the TV, and we did when we are in Colombia, we picked up uh, CNN International and he's debating on one of the CNN liberal men there on the abortion issue and uh, some of the other issues and he sounded perfect. I would agree totally and you would too with what he said. So he sounds good. But there's a lot of things that Benny Hinn has said that sound good too, and they're not. So folks, there's real danger. Time is up. Let us beware of where we're going and what we're doing. Let us examine our ways. Consider your ways personally and as an assembly. Let us not be deceived and fall into the trap that is out there. Many, many other things. If you want to know some of these books, I can give you a list of some of these books which are well worth reading. Gary Gilley has written some good books. In fact, he's written three. (laughs) The first one, written, I believe, about 2002-2004, This Little Church Went to Market. And then you can guess what it talks about. The second one, three or four years later, This Little Church Stayed Home. And the third one was, This Little Church Had None. Three very excellent books. I think the first one is out of print in the States. But uh, Folio Press in Canada, which is is Brethren, uh, has imported some uh, from Great Britain. I wanted to order four copies, and I wrote uh, Sam Cairns, and he said, no, he said, we got lots of them. He said, I'll I'll save you four copies, and I'll pick them up when we go back to home whenever we get there, the end of January or February. But those are three excellent books that give an overview of some of these things. And then the books I mentioned by by Warren Smith and by Paul Smith, and there's many others out there. Chuck Swindoll has written a a book recently on it. Dave Jeremiah has written two or three books on the whole situation. Uh, There are people that God has raised up that are concerned. As deception increases, God raises up people who sound the warning, and praise God for that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you warn us to consider our ways, to stop, to think, to meditate, to ponder our paths, We ask that we would be diligent at doing that and that you would give us great discernment as society decays before our eyes and the church in many cases follows not too far behind. Give us great discernment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.